hey, it's Amy. And I was just chatting with my husband about how comfortable his hoodie was, and he told me, you have got to order me another one of these. The Barrel Horse Life store is unlike any store. Here you get to pick the style, the color, the size, and then it's shipped directly to your front door. Their size is extra small through 5XL. Men's, women's, kids, so much more to choose from. I'd really love for you to check it out for yourself at www.barrelhorselife.store. And if I may add, you have to check out the most comfortable hoodie. It's my favorite and, of course, my husband's favorite. Again, that's www.thebarrelhorselife.store. Continuing on with my interview with Shannon Kerr from last week. If you haven't listened to part one of the conversation yet, you're going to want to hit pause and do that meow. Yep, right meow. So here's the continuation of our conversation. Raw, real, and uncut. In 1993, Dr. John West showed that EIPH occurs during exercise when blood vessels in the lungs rupture. This is due to stress caused by high blood pressure on the inside of the vessels and strong suction forces on the outside. Only flare strips and Lasix, used together or alone, have been clinically proven to reduce EIPH. Lasix works by reducing the high internal pressures and flare strips work by reducing the suction forces on the outside. See the science at flarestrips.com. Most of the walkers I have sold to the states are all dastrophanes and tracetes mm-hmm. and a couple of L-shadies because people are wanting a new genetic, a new bloodline, you know, although L-shady is not in incentives. So, um, but what mainly sells are tracetes and dastrophane or something already running and competing and winning. Because, you know, like I told you, a horse that's running, competing, and winning here is, let's say, let's say it's at the gelding, and it's winning here, you know, that's going to be a dollars $150,000 horse here, and that's going to be a $30,000 horse to an American with transport, another fifteen. So you're buying a, a horse that's running 16s on standard patterns for under $50,000. Wow. Speaking of that, let's talk a little bit about the stallions that you guys have there, because I know that they, I've seen, I've been following you on social media for quite some time, but it is very similar to what we have here. They're just different stallions. They're not your typical, um, you know, dash to fangs and, you know, ain't seen nothing yet. They're not your typical stallions like that. They are, I feel like they're a lot beefier, but also I want you to dabble into what kind of incentive programs you guys have and how the stallions and how that all intertwines down there in Brazil. Okay. Well, first of all, um, there was a horse here named Shady Leo. And Shady Leo was, you know, kind of the dash to fame of Brazil. He, he's been dead for a long time, but he has four of his sons are in the top ten of the stallions here in Brazil. And Shady Leo is also our number one brute bear sire. So the bloodline of Shady Leo is really strong here. And so crossing Shady Leo bred horses with these dash to fames and trace phases and freshman guys and whatnot, I think it created some sort of heterosis and it just brought out the best from both bloodlines. And the great thing about Shady Leo bred horses, in my opinion, they, they have two aspects 
that I find very appealing for me is one, they're extremely sound horses because until literally the last 10 years, we don't have a lot of vet access here or a lot of vet work. Um, really only in the past five or six years have people been injecting horses, okay? So they've been able to come up with these bloodlines that stay sound. And so I would say the biggest thing to me that I love about the Shady Leos is their soundness. The second thing I like about them is their raw takeoff speed. I think what makes them so fast, they're typically not big horses. They're around that 15-hand kind of mark horse. But their takeoff speed is, I've never rode a horse like it. You know, I've had El Shady's. I have a son of Castaño Red, which is also a son of Shady Leo. I rode horses out of Shady Leo bred mares. And the one factor they all have in common is they go from zero to 60 in one stride. And I just, I, I don't see that in, I have Dash of Fames, I have Trace Aces, they're all super fast horses, but that initial speed in one stride is something that I've noticed that the Shady Leos have, that some of our American bloodlines don't have. And then the sound of issue. Um, the reason our stallions are big and bulky and pretty is because they're just, they're fed very, very well. And um, some of the photos are Photoshopped, but most, most aren't. Um, they're just really well taken care of and fed, fed very, very well. Um, incentives. So Brazil is really new to incentives. They tried to do something similar to Future Fortune. It didn't work out because when they went, my, I actually put some horses in it and then took them out. It didn't work because I paid the $200 to enroll the foal, and then when I went to go compete on the foal, they wanted to charge me another 1500 So they didn't manage it quite right, and it didn't work. It didn't go off the ground. Um, now we have some Tomorrow's Legends here, but I don't think it's going to work that well either because of that same issue that you have to enroll the foals, and Brazilians don't quite grasp that concept yet and you're talking about here we have big breeders who have 50 100 300 500 folds born a year and for them to spend that kind of money on a foal they, they just aren't going to do it it's not like in america where a guy has one or two folds born a year maybe 10 here it's a big big scale so i i don't see tomorrow's legends taking off really well either it might but um, I'm actually president of a new association, similar, we're kind of following like what the buckle's doing, but what we did, the reason we started it is our national stallions, the horses born here, are losing to the imported stallion market. They're losing to Strick of Flings, like by Design and Dash to Pay and Trace Safe. Um, we have some amazing stallions here and they're not selling breedings. So we started something similar to the pink buckle. The only difference is the horse has to be in Brazil. So um, we'll have our first race next year with over a million Brazilian dollars, only for the foals of the stallions enrolled. And what we did is we charged a pretty high amount to each stallion, but we're not charging any foal enrollment so that we'll get the people in on it. Because what's happening here in Brazil is the horses out of these that are sired by these stallions, these national horses, they, they, they're not selling very well. They're selling really cheap. And the only things selling are the Slicks, the Tracezes, and the Dash to Fames, and the Strick of Flames. 
And it's so expensive to breed to those horses, not only for the cost, but we have to pay an extra $4,000 Brazilian dollars for each foal born from imported semen. So what's happening is the elitists are the ones making the money and running the industry. So several of us got together and thought, what can we do to promote our horses that are great stallions, but we're losing the market? And the answer was to start a program similar to the Pink Buckle. But the rules are the horse has to be alive and the horse has to be in Brazil. So we don't know if it'll work. We hope it does. But here, incentives aren't a big thing yet. But I don't know. We'll see if it works. I'll let you know in a year or two. Yeah. I hope it does. Because Brazil has some amazing, amazing stallions. And it's really sad to see them lose out to the, the semen from USA, you know? That they're not getting the chance that they deserve. Yeah. Um, but we'll see. Stuff takes a lot of time to take off. It will. But what's really cool about it is it's 50 stallions. So, you know, we've got about 40 owners. And it's really neat to see all these breeders come together with with finally this, this mentality to improve the sport. In fact, even in our race, we want to bring in more rodeo girls, more of the, the middle-class, lower-class people to compete because, like I told you, the sport is becoming too elitist here. It's good in a way because it's showing everybody that horses can be faster and better, but it's bad in a way that it's keeping some people from being involved. Well, I would like you to walk us through what it's like for you to travel to a typical barrel race. Well, before you do that, What's the rodeo scene like out there? I know, obviously, you know what it's like here. But barrel races and jackpots, are they different from the rodeo scene out where you are? Yes, there's there's a very big difference. Um, rodeo horses here don't have as much value as open barrel horses do. And it's usually that middle, lower-class people that go to rodeos because they're more affordable. I go to a lot of rodeos because it's a great place for me to get um, get my young horses out and not such an expense. So, for example, if you want to go to an average open jackpot here in Brazil, you're going to spend on average $1,000 a horse between entry fees, stalls, and, and things like that, okay? And I can go to a rodeo, and I'll explain how rodeos work. It's kind of a cool system, but because it's so hard to travel here, you know, I already explained the document you have to have to travel to go back and forth. Um, rodeos here work like this. You go in the morning, and everybody runs twice. Everybody. And then you don't have to run twice, but you can. And you run twice, and then they take your best time. And you can run as many horses as you want, but only your fastest horse goes to the final. So usually everybody runs in the morning twice in like a slack type of situation. And then at night, the 10 or 15 of the fastest time during the day run at night. And then the winner is your average from the morning and the night. So rodeo horses run three times a day here. They run twice in the morning, and then if they make the final, they run again at night in the final during the performance. And um, we also have exhibitions at rodeos. Here, an exhibition at a big show is usually around $60. And at rodeos, it's usually 450 And so it's a little bit cheaper. The entry fee at a rodeo is from 150 to $250. So I can take my young horses to a rodeo, exhibition them, 
women twice in the morning and spend less than I would take them into a big show. So I actually do that a lot. So here, um, you don't see girls go from one rodeo to the next to the next to the next. They plan their rodeo for the weekend because some rodeos are two and three days long. And what they do there is you run in the morning twice. They take the top 10. Those top 10 run at night. They'll take the top five of that average. And those five go to the final on the third day. Then on the second day, they do it again and take the top five. Then on the last day, you have the, the top five from the two days prior. So you have the top 10 that run in the final on the third day. So you may go to a rodeo and run your horse two, three, four, five, six, seven times in three days. Wow. No wonder your horses have to be and, in such good shape. And the, and the rodeo ground here is terrible. It's terrible. A lot of times it's sand thrown on top of grass. Um, there's They have shows here, like concerts, every night. So there's chickens in the arena, broken bottles. It's, it's really horrible. Like, the rodeo horses here, they are tough. And it's, so it's not like what you see when you see these other people. And the rodeos for girls, for women. But what's different is most people here have a trainer. So the trainer exhibitions the rodeo horse, saddles the rodeo horse, warms up the rodeo horse, and the girl gets on it and makes the run. That's way different. It's, it's way different. It's way different. It's very different. But rodeo horses here don't have much value. Like, you can buy a, a bang-up winning rodeo horse in Brazil. You could probably spend 50, 60, 100,000 at the most. And uh, so you're looking at, you know, between twelve and twenty thousand dollars for a winning rodeo horse, but if you go to a show and you want to buy the horse that's winning the show, you're going to spend two and three hundred thousand yeah. American dollars on a rodeo. You're going to spend a million Brazilian dollars on on a horse. Wow. So unfortunately, rodeo horses here are amazing, but they just don't have the value that the the open show horses do. I'm always so amazed watching videos of Brazilian riders. How they ride, I'm, I guess I'm being very stereotypical, so I apologize if I offend anybody when I say this, but how they ride compared to how we ride here in the United States is much different. I feel like they they don't even touch their horns. You know, I had asked a friend of mine whenever I first started seeing, you know, the Brazilians were really coming onto social media and breaking standard patterns constantly I was just so amazed. It's like they don't even touch their horns for balance whatsoever. So can you just tell us all about how the magic is done by not touching the horn? <laughs> it is just amazing. Well, and it goes back to one, there are younger men. You know, there are men, they're athletes. They, you know, um, they're really fit. They ride 40 horses a day. You know, their timing is impeccable. The Brazilians, their idea with training is a little bit different. They, their spots are a little bit different. Um, the reason they have so much body movement is that they kind of train the horse to run straight at the barrel, and then with their body, they move the horse out and around. But the horse is super broke, so they can do that, okay? Um, they just are athletes themselves. They're, like I said, they're men from 18 to 35 years old. Mm -hmm. They literally ride horses from 6 in the morning to 10 at night. Mm -hmm. And they just, they're just athletic. Now, 
the bad part of this is, like I said, when a, when an amateur person or an owner rider wants a horse, they can't. It's hard to find one because they can't ride like that. You know, um, they think if you have to grab the horn, it's not a good rider. You know, like they, the, the trainers here all really like me. They all really respect me, um, but they think I'm not a good rider because I have to grab my saddle horn. Mm-hmm. So it's just a, and sometimes I think like if, if some of them, some are starting to and really running good times, okay. Um, but it's just it's just a culture thing here, you know. And sometimes it's really ugly to watch. And sometimes I think too, like if you would grab your horn, it would be faster. But then I see them run a sixteen three, and I'm over there with a seventeen three. So is it? <laughs> Maybe we're wrong. You know, I mean, really, I mean, this this is what goes through my mind is like, I am doing everything right, but they're kicking my ass. So am I right? Yeah. Are we right as Americans? When you go to a a Brazilian barrel race and 85% of the horses are 1D horses and they're using two hands around the barrel, Mm -hmm. am I right? I mean, you know, this is what goes through my head. And, um, but what it has taught me is this. When you go to grab your horn, your horse does start to start to fade in, okay? Because you're losing that contact with the outside rein. So me as myself, I try to stay two-handed as long as possible. Because if your horse is up and straight, he's running. The moment they start to fade in, you're losing speed. Okay, you're losing that momentum. So I try to stay two-handed as long as possible, but I can't turn a barrel with two hands, I'll just fall off. But it has taught me to stay two hands longer. And if you notice, like, horses here, they don't hit barrels. They don't drop their shoulders like American horses do. No. Um, you know, even my friend with the Shady Slick and this, this other girl that has my horse in Montana, she says, Shannon, if I leave the barrels up, I win the barrel race. But what she's having problems with is the horses coming back so fast. She's hitting them leaving, not going in. You know, our horses don't drop shoulders um, because we teach them to run straight up into that pocket, straight up into that turn. Mm-hmm. They, they don't even know how to drop a shoulder, most of them. Yeah. So it, it's just, uh, if you think about it, you know, you go to the horn, that horse starts to fade in. And so I think what they're doing is, and if you watch how they turn, Brazilian horses, they lift the horses up before they turn. Okay, Americans, we go to our horn and our horses drop I think this is another reason why we're so fast, because the moment your horse drops, you've lost the velocity that you can't get back. Mm-hmm. So we tend to pick our horses up before they turn so they can get that inside hip inside of that barrel and so that they can leave and they're always up. They never drop. So they never lose speed around the turn. So, but there are more and more taking the saddle horn, which is nice. They think I'm not. They think I'm a great trainer. I'm just not a good rider because I'm quiet and I grab my saddle horn. <laughs> you know, it's it's very frustrating to come here and and get beat by that because it doesn't look good. It doesn't. But when you see it in person and you watch the animal himself, you know, forget about the guy on top. The the speed and the agility and the movement of the horse is just. It's just amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. I don't even have a word. Yeah. So cool. They're not man. They're not up there manhandling, yanking them around, 
it's very soft and fluid. The, and of course, like you said, I'm, I'm seeing the most winningest runs that are coming across my social media. But they're not pulling hard and yanking them around the barrels. That horse is super responsive. Like you said, that's in my brain instantly went back to that horse is broken responsive and respects exactly. the rider's hands and is coming around and snapping around that barrel so fast and they're light on their feet. They're not pulling mm-hmm. on the rider. They're not being disrespectful. They are immediate and now and let's go fast. Every single one of them. Yep, and they're trained to follow the rider's hands. So the horses run as hard as they can. They're not, the horse isn't really thinking about his spot. He's running until that rider asks him to turn. And this is why it's sometimes hard to ride after these guys. And this is why some people are like, oh, I want, how much is that horse that runs 16 fives? I'm like, you, you need to come ride it first because you may not be able to because unless your timing is the same as his, it's not going to work because these horses are taught to follow your hand and run until you ask them to make that move. And these guys that are running these 16s, their timing is impeccable and that horse is in sync with them. You know, so it's, you know, it's not necessarily horses that just anybody can jump on and go ride. No. So, but, it's, it's, but it's amazing. And, and it's something for us to think about to improve ourselves, which is what I've done. So I'm trying to make horses that give you that same turn, that same speed, but can do it with one hand on the rein. You know, that can do it grabbing the saddle horn. And it's working. It's pretty cool, and when people come here and ride the horses, they're like, oh, my gosh, it's so amazing, you know? Because um, it, it is. It is. It's, it's amazing to, to get on these horses, and they run, and you think, she's never going to turn, because that's the feeling you get. So a lot of times when people come here and try my horses that are more finished, you know, like some young security horses and stuff, the first time they run them, it's a disaster, because the horse runs as hard as he can, and the person that's riding them think this horse isn't rating. You know, we don't train rate. We don't want a horse to rate because that's too slow. So um, they think the horse is not going to turn. So then they pull on him, and the horse is so broke in their face that the horse kind of like, you know, stepped way off the barrel and kind of panics because they're like, oh, my gosh, what's going on, you know? Mm-hmm. But then when you, when you get it, it's amazing. But it's scary to some people because the horses do not slow down. There is no rate in our horses. So you have to train the rider before they even step foot in the saddle. Exactly. And that's what I've done. And I think that's why even like uh, Shady Slick and the other horses um, are, are doing well because those girls didn't just buy the horse and leave. They came here. They rode with me. When I sent the horses to the States, I spent three weeks with them. You know, we went to shows, exhibitions, showed them how to train them, how to ride them. Then they send me videos. You know, it's not just, okay, you have the horse, you're on your own, because it won't work. Because the mentality, the training, the thinking, it, it, it's very, very different than what is the common theories in the United States. You know, I'm not, not everybody, but you know what I mean? There's a typical mainstream type of way to train, and if that's what you're used to, this, this horse won't work for you until you learn it. And the truth is, the, most of the people that have my horses, like I have some in Europe as well, um, in fact, last weekend, a girl won a show in France on one of my horses. Um, once they have these horses, they actually sell their other horses. 
and then just move over to this type of style. Off the top of your head, how many horses do you think that you have bought, trained, and sold just by yourself? Just here in Brazil, because we have a system called SGP. It's an entering system where it keeps all your list of horses. Mm-hmm. Um, so just in the 12 years in Brazil, I've trained, I think the last time I looked, which doesn't include the horses I have this year, it was 133. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. 133. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. I've probably trained close, at least, oh my gosh, at least 200, over 200 head of horses. Yeah. So you've got plenty of experience underneath your belt. Yeah. In fact, when I go to give clinics, like I have some clinics to give in Canada in July, and they actually all filled. I can't believe it. <laughs> it's crazy. Because um, I can't believe someone would want to learn from me, but it's cool. But the one thing I do say in my clinics is I am not better than anybody. I'm not. I've just had a lot of experience. You know, I said I ride and train in the 15 horses a year myself. You know, not to mention the other horses I ride in clinics or with friends and things like that. And not to mention all the race horses I rode all those years, you know, to pay my way to college. So I've just really sat on a lot of horses. And I've been in every situation you could imagine. I've had the alley sour horse. I've had the horse that doesn't turn the first barrel. I've had, you know, anything you can imagine, I have been there. So when I go and get clinics, you know, I'm like, you just have to trust me because I've been there and I'm saving you time. And, uh, and usually it works. And, you know, that's one thing. Like, every year I tell my husband, I'm going to keep this horse. I'm going to keep this horse. I'm getting older. I'm almost 50. I'm going to keep this one for me. And he giggles. And uh, he says, but you know, Shetman, when you sell them and you get another one, then the other one could be the best horse of your life. And I'm like, dang it, you're right. You know, because he puts that idea in my head that I need to sell that one because the next one could be better. <laughs> and the truth is, when a horse gets finished, I get kind of bored. Yeah. It's, it's, just, it's just what I've done all my life. And, and now for the first time in my life, I have my own home. And I really like being home. I'm going to go in the fall. I have two three-year-olds that I'm training now that I haven't sold yet that um, if they don't sell, my plan is to run them in the juvenile. I would like to get a slot because I have one that's really, really amazing. Probably the best horse I've ever trained. So I would like to do a slot race. And then my idea is to put them in the auction and come home (laughs) if they don't sell first. Got to have some sort of game plan going into that mentally. Yeah, I love Christmas and Halloween. So I'm like, hmm, if I do this, I get to see all the the Halloween decorations and Christmas decorations. I wanted to ask you about your guys' tack. I know that's come up a couple times on social media. Um, Tell us a little bit about the Brazilian saddle and how it's different from what we have here. Okay, well, I kind of had some experience in that because um, I actually manufactured saddle, the pro-light saddles. Yes, which I um, want you to dabble in that as well because that was going to be my next question. Okay, because I didn't, I don't, you know, I didn't want to do this podcast with that in mind, like, oh, I'm doing this to promote myself, and I'm going to tell you a little bit of history of what happened. Please. Um, Brazilian saddles here were terrible. Like, every horse's back here is sore. They don't care. They care about weight. Okay? And if the horse's back is sore, they didn't care. They just make the horse work good and go on. And I hated the saddles here. Hated, hated, hated them. And I always rode uh, Double J saddles and Shiloh saddles and Ed Wright saddles. And I had two Double J saddles and a Shiloh saddle here with me in Brazil. So I I don't believe in the 
fiberglass tree because I've seen what it does to horses here. So I never used the fiberglass tree. And our tree maker, he would always say, you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't do that. And I was like, yes, you can, yes, you can. But finally we got this tree the way that I liked it. Because first of all, we cannot use rubber bands in Brazil to keep our feet in. So I needed a saddle that would help me keep my balance and not lose my stirrups, okay? And I'm a big believer on shoulder movement. And here in Brazil, we, we get our horses to bend a lot through the ribcage, really a lot, a lot more than there. So I needed a saddle that could give, let the horse bend like that and also not pinch him anywhere on his back. So we finally got that. And... um so here's the thing. So the, the tree that we use here in Brazil, the wood, is called Taroba um, Rosa. And it's a tree, it's a timber tree that is light. It's a light wood, but it's very strong, but yet it has some movement in it, okay? So it's a type of tree that you don't have in the United States that we have here. So one reason why even our leather saddles are a little bit lighter is because our tree is a little bit lighter. It's still a very good tree. It's a very strong tree. It's just a different type of wood, okay? Secondly, the cattle we have here are what's called zebu cattle. Angus cattle can only thrive in the very southern part of Brazil where it's cooler. These cattle here, their skin moves. They're kind of like a horse. If a fly or a tick lands on them, they can shake their skin and the, the insect falls off. And Angus, uh, Herford, can't do that. So what happens with Angus and Herford here is they get infested with ticks. And, and they're hot because they're made to be in cooler temperatures, where our animals are made to be in hot temperatures. So the leather from the, from the Zebu cattle is a little bit thinner because we don't have the winters, you know. So the leather itself is a little bit thinner and lighter. But what I think, you know, what I hate is when people say, oh, saddles from Brazil aren't good quality. Well, some are not, and I'll get into that in a second. But the leather ones are, it's just a different type of leather that Americans aren't used to. But because these animals are used to the heat and the insects, the leather from here actually holds up a lot better than the leather from the United States from the type of cattle there and the processing there against sweat and the weather here. Like, I can leave... If I took my double J saddle and set it out in the sun, and I took my polarite saddle and set it out in the sun, if I came back a week later, my double J saddle would all start to crack because that type of leather made to be on that animal in a cooler environment, okay? Whereas the leather from the zebu cattle, it will shrink a little bit because of the sun, but it won't crack. So... To say that our leather, our leather saddles aren't of good quality, it's not that. It's just that Americans screw up with these heavy saddles, you know, made from these Angus and Hereford hides that are treated with a lot of oil. So you're, you're used to that feel, whereas the leather from here is from a totally different breed of cattle. But it actually stands up to the rain and the elements better than that other type of leather. However, let me explain neoprene saddles, because I think this is where people get a little more freaked out or a little confused. So these saddles are not actually made of neoprene. The material on top is actually hide, kind of like shap leather, like, you know, when you wear shaps. Mm-hmm. And that hide, there's two levels to it, okay? There's the top level, which we call vaqueta, and there's a bottom level, what is called hasta. 
Now, the master saddles and the seven saddles are made from the hospa because it's smoother, but it's a lot, lot cheaper. It costs three times as less than the vaqueta, which is the top part of the hide. Okay, but what happens is it wears faster. You cannot just wash it with soap and water and it comes back to life. Um, it starts to get holes. It starts to look bad. But it's a lot cheaper and it is lighter. Whereas us, we only use the vaqueta, which is the top part of the, of the hide. So our saddles cost more to make, but we have to sell them at a lesser price because Master and Seven got in the market first. But our neoprene saddles, you're actually riding a type of leather, like what you make sh shafts out of, but you can wash it and it looks brand new. You know, it will last you a lifetime. It's the type of saddle you can ride in every day. But the reason people say these lightweight saddles, you can't ride them every day, is because these other brands use the hospital part of the hide, which is the bottom part of the hide, which is thinner and of lesser quality. So, but we use the vaqueta, which is the top part. The neoprene part comes in is where where you seal in the saddle so that it has some thickness is neoprene. So like the skirt and the seat, you know, you have the buckets of the hide over it, but to fill out that space and to keep the saddle lighter weight, that's where the neoprene is located. That makes sense. So, yeah, so the actual material on these so-called neoprene saddles is not neoprene. It's actually hide that has been treated differently than leather. You know, it hasn't been leatherized. But the difference between Prolite 7 and Master is that we use the top part, which costs three times as much, and the other brands use the bottom part. But because we go to the market late, there's this conception, this perception that lightweight saddles are cheap and they fall apart. And that's only because they're used to the ones that use the cheaper quality of hide. But anyway, so that's how that started. <laughs> All of it got started because of exchange rates. Now, here in Brazil, they don't care about they don't care about tax. They really don't. They put trash bags under their saddle pads. So they don't ruin their saddle pads. Oh, my god! Like, these sacks, right? Yeah, it's crazy. They, they really, they don't care about color. They don't care about matching. They, they really don't care about look at all. They only care about performance. And the lighter, the better. So a lot of them use some... Rubbery type headstalls that are really light. They don't necessarily use leather headstalls. They use those little thinly made breast collars. They just try to get the weight. They care about the weight. Just in the past year, have they started caring caring about the benefit of the horse? Um, and I think that started with our saddle pads. So I had a man with kissing spine. And um, a friend of mine had a factory that made products for horses. So I designed with three vets the saddle pads for her. And I loved it so much that I made it for my other horses. And then it turned into the spinal release pad that we're now selling in USA. And that only started because I had people come here and see it and then buy it and, and whatnot. And then um, my vets saw it here and started to tell the other guys about it. And so my saddle pad is, is probably the most popular saddle pad here in Brazil. And because of that, and then seeing the difference in the horses, they're starting to pay a little more attention to saddles and trees on saddles, but still not too much. Yeah. 
but they really does put a good shadow pad. But they just don't care about look at all. Not like us. You know, we want a pad that matches our shirt, you know, we want the little bell boots that match our pad, you know, we want our buck stitch the same color as the buck stitch on our headstall. Here they don't and I think that's because it's a man industry. If, if you're pretty, it's not going to win your first place. They don't care. They don't care. Yeah. They really don't care. And they have so many horses that they just amaze me. Like, <laughs> like I'm not kidding you. You'll see these guys, their assistant will bring them the next horse. They don't adjust the stirrup. They don't even tighten the fins. They just get on and go. I mean, it's like, I'm such a wuss. You know, I would have to check my, make sure my stirrups were the right length. I would have to make sure my saddle was tight. They just don't, they just ride. Yeah. They're just athletes. Speaking of the saddle tree, I don't think people can talk enough. You know, so much is spoken about saddles and saddle fit, mm-hmm. but it really kind of comes down to the tree. So if you wouldn't mind, tell us a little bit about um, your ProLite series. Um, are all the trees the same in your saddles or do you have a little bit of variation? No, there, there is a little bit, and I actually have um, a program called the Angle Pro. If someone takes a picture of the back of their horse uh, with the head straight, you know, where you can see the, the back, um, I developed a, a computer program here, and we can measure that out and find the goal list that matches that horse and the angle of the bars that that horse is going to need. You know, it gives, and it gives a pretty good estimate, you know, um, the trees are not the same, and they can be made any way anybody wants them. Our trees are handmade by a guy here, okay? And, uh, but the basic tree in, in all of the saddles of the, you know, stock saddles, in case you need something special, but stock saddles, the idea of it is, is to create even pressure down the lumbar of the horse and the, the shoulder flare. So sometimes when people put one of our saddles on their horses, and the shoulder flare opens a little bit, and it doesn't look like that typical saddle you're used to, where, you know, it's kind of flat against your horse's shoulder. They think the saddle doesn't fit. But that is there so that that horse has free range of motion in that shoulder because that shoulder is so important. You know, that shoulder is what extends. That shoulder is what crosses over and helps you finish your turn. And there is a nerve that runs through your horse's shoulders and withers. And if you know, if you were to put pressure on that, you know, you're going to shorten that horse's stride. You're going to shorten that horse's crossover. So I designed these saddles so that that horse has complete freedom in his shoulder and right behind his wither. Like if you go out to your horse and you go right there behind his wither and you put pressure, a lot of horses are really sore there because of your typical rigging. So when you tighten up the saddle, what happens? You tighten it up, it pulls down right behind that wither. And I never liked that because I feel like that is the, um, the point where that horse has to start his bending. You know, it's, it's the pendulum is yeah. right there, right behind that wither. Yeah. So I got the pressure off of that by moving our rigging a little bit back. It's more of a centered rigging. And so when you pull it, when you tighten the saddle, it pulls from behind the cantle and it pulls from behind the pommel. So the saddle sets very square and even but it leaves a lot of room for movement in the shoulder and in the other area. But it does have a little bit different look than what most people are used to seeing. 
But the, the concept of that is to give that horse as much freedom in that shoulder as he can possibly have because he's got to be able to have a full range of motion there in order to have that complete crossover, to have that complete stride. They're like saddles with the regular rigging, they don't allow that. And if you look where most horses get sore, is really right there behind that litter. Yeah. Um, again, the wood that they're made out of is this, it's this tropical wood that is very strong, but it does have some movement to it. So when your horse is bending through the ribcage, making that turn, that tree actually slightly bends with him. You know, instead of just staying rigid there, and, and, you know, imagine you're having it on your back and you're bending and you have something just stiff right there. So the tree does have some give to it, but it won't break. You know, and then because it's this um, tropical tree, it's, it's actually a lighter tree than, say, your, your oak or your maple or some of the other harder woods that you have there in the state. And the guy that makes them, he got so mad at me because I kept saying it needs to be like this. And he's like, it can't be like that. That's impossible. You can't make a tree like that. And I said, you have to. And after a year, he did it. He did it. So, and so another thing, too, is um, some saddles have where your rigging is, where you tighten it up, is also where your stirrups run through. So not only are you getting, you know, the pressure from tightening the saddle over one area of your horse's back, you're getting the weight of the rider in that same area. So we actually have the stirrups. Um, the weight of the rider of the stirrups is in the middle between where the weight is where we tighten up the saddle or the pressure. So when you tighten it up, you're pulling pressure by the cantle and by the pommel. But where the stirrups are located is in between that so that when you're standing up or running or turning, that pressure is more distributed throughout the back of the horse instead of it all being in one place. That makes a ton of sense. Mm -hmm. But you know what I've learned in my life? A lot of saddle makers don't ride horses. (laughs) They don't get it, you know? Yeah. It's kind of odd. And, like, you know, Brazil trailer makers, they don't have horses. Like, I bought a trailer here. It was so expensive, and it had so many things wrong. And I was like, obviously, you don't have horses. And yeah. she was like, no, we don't have horses. And I was like, and you're making trailers? You know? Mm. So a lot of the saddles made here in Brazil are made by people that don't even own horses. And um, fortunately, my partner, he is a roper. So, you know, he, he ropes a lot. And I run barrels and train horses. So when I go to him with a change or something, he's very open-minded about it and understands it. Yeah, it's all for the benefit for the horse and the rider. But I was, I've always had the mindset: the horse comes first, the rider comes second. But in this case, it's kind of yeah. like a two and one. If you can better the balance of the rider, it's going to better the ride for the horse, like in the comfort zone. Yeah, and it does. And and a lot of people who have our saddles um, have told us that they were able to quit using rubber bands too. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like that's really cool that, you know, that not only is they feel more confident in the saddle, um, that they're, they feel so confident enough that they can start running without rubber bands. And I've had some, some women, you know, the, you know, the, the mom who's had kids and she's coming back to ride and they don't maybe have some confidence. And many people have told us it's the saddle that was able to give them that confidence back. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's wonderful. Because it's hard and to I, come back when you don't have those muscles and you've lost. It's all about balance. 
And if you don't have your balance, mm-hmm. like you said, going going 30 miles an hour straight into a barrel and you're stopping and turning and snapping back, you have to have balance. It's hard. You do. And I think because I rode English and dressage and jumping horses for so long, um, that helped too with this design. And I made the horn, you know, because here in Brazil, it's about timing. I mean, you have to be perfect or you're, you're out. So even the saddle horn, I designed it so that I could get it quickly. You know, like it's, it's like the second I drop my rein, I drop my rein and my horn is right there. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have to search for the horn. It's not forward. It's not back. It's not low. It's not too tall. You know, I mean, I really put a lot of emphasis on the horn as well um, because, you know, I wanted to be able to run in there and get my horn as fast as possible and to be able to release and be in my position as fast as possible coming out of the turn as well. And um, so it's, I mean, is it the best saddle? I don't know. I mean, it is for me. And, you know, it's kind of like jeans. It's not going to fit everyone, you know. And we can make special treats for horses. That is that is true. Um, that's not a problem. It just takes a little bit longer to you know the, the, to make the product. But you know, um, you know, when people are like, "Oh, what do you think of Seven and Master and all these other things and Double J?" and I say, you know, there there is a saddle for every horse, mm-hmm. and every saddle has its pros and every saddle has its cons. And this is how we designed this saddle, and this is what this saddle is made. And you may need something different, and that's okay. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I like to compare it, you know, since I'm a hair, I'm a full-time hairstylist, I compare it to hair care mm-hmm. companies. There are companies for people that have curly hair. There are companies that specialize in smoothing the hair. There, you know, uh, there's, there's so many variables, and horses are no, and saddles are no different. You know, you have, they're all yeah. different shapes, sizes, widths. Um, of you know, cutting a saddle is going to fit way different than a dressage saddle. And we, you have to have companies that are going to fit for everybody. That's why there's so many of them out there. Yeah, no, and that's exactly right. And, um, you know, fortunately, we've been selling very well. Um, our pads have been selling very, very well. Um, I actually get more excited about the pads than the saddles. Um, because that's something that I literally just had to create out of necessity because I didn't have anybody that did kissing. There's nobody in Brazil that does kissing spine surgery. I guess there's only one vet up in Rio de Janeiro that does it. So, you know, I had to design this pad with my vet to help this man with kissing spine. And then it turned into this amazing saddle pad. And I'm, so I'm actually more proud of the pad than I am even the saddle. Mm-hmm. That's, so, that's cool. so do you have just one pad or do you have multiple pads? You know, I tried making all different kinds, but they just don't sell. And so we stick just with the spinal relief pad. Yeah. And um, and that's the one I use it to, you know. But I tried, you know, because uh, the pad factory can make all different kinds. I tried putting some other kinds out there, but the competition is just too, too tough. You know, there's a bunch of other great saddle pads on the market. But there's not a lot of saddle pads on the market that do what the spinal relief pad does. And, and going back to saddles, we get a lot of people saying, my saddle rolls, my saddle rolls. And whenever we do the Angle Pro program on them, it's so obvious that the horse has one shoulder much larger than the other. Yeah, my horse does, yeah. So, so a lot of times, it doesn't matter what saddle you buy, 
that saddle's going to roll because the saddle's always going to roll towards the weaker shoulder yeah. because there's that space there. Mm-hmm. So um, we can make specific pads for that. Like we can make a pad that is built up on one side to help to prevent rolling, mm-hmm. you know. But until we started doing this angle pro and actually, you know, putting the, the computer on the backs of these horses, I didn't realize how many horses have a significantly larger shoulder than the other side. Mm-hmm. Many, 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 60% at least. Yeah. Yeah, and it's funny because I never noticed, well, I shouldn't say I never, I, I noticed it was that way. I was actually at a Charmaine James clinic and she had her gal that did body work there. And she said, have you ever noticed this? And she kind of grabbed her hand and pushed on his shoulder. I said, yes. Can we? Can you help me elaborate and figure this out? And she wasn't a chiropractor. She wasn't just a masseuse, but she did full head-to-toe body work. And um, her name is Melissa. And I'm sorry, Melissa, if you're listening to this, I can never remember your last name. But she was, she literally changed my life. So she had me do some different things, body work, as far as like, rubbing on him and trying to help break down any kind of buildup that was up in there. And I have just figured out that it is how he is. So, and I actually ride in a treeless saddle and my treeless saddle has conformed to his shoulder like that. And I, I can't ride in anything else because that saddle has conformed and it fits him like a glove. And I absolutely love the setup that we have right now, but I, it, it's amazing. But Anyways, yes, it's more prevalent than what we realize. And watching, now that I have awareness of it, watching other horses just like walk walk to the wash rack at a show, I'm like, oh, his shoulder's higher. Oh, his his hip is higher. You know, yeah. you, you kind of start noticing that. But you, I would agree with you 100%. There are more horses out there that have one shoulder built up higher than the other if you just stop and really get the correct angle to look at it. Yeah. And, and, you know, here in Brazil, we do a lot of things with our horses that I don't see in the States. We do a lot of, of stretching our horses um, when we first get on them. Like, we lift their heads way, way up in the air and around. We, we work a lot on releasing the pole, mm-hmm. the pole all the way down to the shoulder and then into the ribcage. And we, we do that from the very beginning, from the day we start breaking them. And I've never, not saying nobody does it in USA, but I've never seen it. And I think it could be, you know, even that, because here in Brazil, we don't have this problem so bad of one shoulder being larger than the other. Here, it's actually more rare. But from the day they start breaking them, they do all this stretching from on top of them, riding them, okay? Lifting them up and bringing them around and different things like this. It's it's really hard to explain in a voice message. I would just have to send you a video and show you. Mm -hmm. But I think because... Brazilians do this, I think it does help because I think maybe even in the breaking process, you know, that horse gets um, limited in a certain movement, you know, and then he gets stronger on one side than the other, and then it just snowballs into what the horse is. And I think, because here really, there's not that much problem with it like I see it in the States. But our horses are, are similar to typically, like they grow faster, like our two-year-olds look like your four- and five-year-olds. Wow. Okay, and it's our weather. It's the weather. Like, people are like, I can't believe you guys run them at two and a half, three years old. Like, our horses are three years old when they're running the security, okay? But they're physically way more mature than the American horses I've seen at that age. And I really, really believe it's our weather. 
because we don't have that winter. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, your cult, from the time they're born until the time they're two and three, they pass three to six months, depending where they live, in a really cold environment. And they have to keep warm, and so their body's busy staying warm than it is developing. We don't really have a lot of horses that break down because they run young like this. But by the time your horses get to five or six, they've caught up to ours and all the horses look the same. But I'm telling you, our two- and three-year-olds, everyone that comes here and they go in my barn and they're like, that horse is just two? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, oh, my God, my five-year-old is that big. You know? (laughs) I really believe it's our weather. (laughs) Because the genetics are the same. You know, the programs are basically the same. So it has to be the weather. This has been the second episode of a three-part series. The last episode of the series will come out next Wednesday morning. Be sure to visit her website at skequineproducts.com where she has her ProLite saddles, her amazingly designed spinal relief pad, and so much more. You can follow her on Facebook and Instagram where she does post some really amazing content. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at The Barrel Horse Life where you're going to find some behind-the-scenes content, store merch, and new episodes. Visit the store website at www.thebarrelhorselife.store. This episode of the podcast was edited, produced, and marketed by me, Amy Davenport, right from my tiny recording closet. This is The Barrel Horse Life.